Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Brexit, free speech, UCAS data, an OFS bonanza, and more. That That's a real issue. That is something which we should all be concerned about. My own personal view is that we should be absolutely resolute in defending uh, the right of people to speak out against uh, other countries' governments if they want to, and we shouldn't necessarily be bound by extraterritorial laws on it. And, and it, it, it is a shame that it does get bound up in the same broad bucket as whether... Um, you know, whether students can, can, can clap or boo to be Toby Young. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and it's the end of the season and the last show of the year. But there's one final roll of the policy dice. And to, to do it, I'm joined by three fabulous guests in London. We have Jonathan Simons, Director and Head of Education Practice at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, I think my highlight of the week is undoubtedly that it is the last week of the working year and I'm looking very much forward to Christmas. And also in London, we have Vivian Stern, Director of Universities UK International. Vivian, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, it's going to be Friday afternoon. It really, really is. But I did have, I had the world's saddest Christmas party this week. I had a couple of neighbours come around for um, very cold mulled wine and um, very hot mince pies in our front garden. And it was dismal. And in Watford, we have Jim Dickinson, uh, known to you and I as Wonky's Associate Editor. Jim, you, uh, your highlight of the week, please. Yeah, well, mine's quite sort of kind of nerdy and worky, but um, I, I, my highlight was watching Oliver Dowden this week make actually what I thought was a really helpful and balanced contribution into this kind of wider set of freedom of speech and culture wars debates when he actually said that it was possible that there could be harms that could come for adults from nevertheless legal speech online which uh, is in marked contrast to lots of the other contributions we get in this debate niche and let's start the week with the big story dominating the headlines uh it's brexit and uh, at the time of recording, it looks like we're edging towards a deal. Uh, Vivian, what's going on? Oh, who knows? I, I've been determined not to ride the roller coaster on this uh, deal, no deal thing because I've been there before. Last um, October, just before the the thirty first of October, and um, threatened no deal. I got to, I got to a point where I felt actually ill for a week. You know, I had kind of proper anxiety attacks over no deal. So I'm determined not to get my knickers in a twist over whether there's going to be an agreement or not. I think that we have a pretty good idea. Uh, what would happen in both scenarios. I think we've done everything we can to prepare for both scenarios. So, you know, then I think you just have to sit tight and wait. But if I had to put money on it, I'd say there would be a deal. Um, and I think that this is just one gigantic game of chicken. And what was happening at the weekend was uh, just the latest and most um, probably predictable step in that game of chicken. And I mean, the issues for the sector haven't really changed since the referendum itself. Um but there were there's lots of concern earlier this week about Erasmus+. What can you say about where that's got to? Do you, can you- 
Well, I think the, so the, there was a briefing which um, Barnier gave to EU ambassadors, which Politico picked up. And um, they were told by somebody who was in the room that Barnier had said that um, the negotiation on Erasmus had concluded and that there was no agreement in that area so that the UK would not be in the next uh, programme. UK side uh, folk are saying that's not their uh, view of the situation and that negotiations are ongoing. So, you know, again, who knows? But I wouldn't be tremendously surprised if the end result of the negotiations, whether there's a deal or not, is uh, the UK dropping out of the Erasmus programme. I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised about that. Yeah. I mean, Jonathan, how high up on the on the roster of kind of lines and negotiating points is higher education stuff? So when I, I think about Erasmus Plus or the access to the research programmes, things like that. Do, I mean, the government say that those things are important to them, but that it doesn't it doesn't you know, are they going to go to the to the wall on them in the way they are going to on on fishery for example uh no not 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 in the slightest i'm afraid uh it, it it's well well down the list uh you know the 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 things that are really driving the uk negotiating position are uh what's called the level playing field essentially the the way in which the uk and the eu can or cannot diverge from each other over time um and then there are a few very very politically salient issues um of which fish is one um, largely because of its importance in Scotland um, and also its sort of totemic importance to, to, to a lot of the people who voted leave. And, and I'm afraid, um, particularly given the vast amount of economic contribution, apart from anything else, higher education makes to this country, uh, it is probably uh, very much a make way to negotiation. So I suspect Vivian is right. If it, if it smooths the deal uh, quite easily, you could see the UK dropping out of a, a lot of HE collaboration. Yeah, well, I think uh, I'm never going to not be angry about Brexit. Um. <laughs> yeah, can I add one thing, an additional thing to be angry about? Like, whose bright idea was it to have a transition period ending on the 31st of December? Because, you know, as we have discussed, we're quite looking forward to a break and some bright spark didn't really think this through. So that is also another reason to be angry. Jim, do you want to say anything about Brexit? Or gonna... can, can I just, um, Viv, can I just check, is this, um, is this settlement scheme problem still a problem in terms of EU students that haven't made it here yet? Ah, uh, well, I mean, I think the, the, the students who come here before the 31st and, um, uh, apply for pre-settled status are, you know, they, they get covered by the withdrawal agreements. So those students who get here before the 31st have, you know, huge advantages over those who arrive on the, um, 1st of January. Um, now, of course, there are students who might otherwise have come to the UK who won't do because of the, um, pandemic. Uh, but I, I mean, you know, I think that's, it's just yet another, uh, adverse impact of the of the of the pandemic, and and, and am I right that what well, it, 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 it at least would be possible for the government to uh, kind of um, adapt and extend the terms of the settlement scheme to kind of fix this little problem, right? Well, I think it would be possible, but I don't think they're going to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what Jonathan's view is, but I think that's um, that's that's just sort of you know that's the way the cookie has in fact crumbled. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. They could they they could they could amend it. They could do you know. Given, given that the EU side has no great desire to close off freedom of movement and settlement, it's entirely within the UK's gift to do so, and it wouldn't necessarily cost them anything, but they're not going to do it. Mm. Well, that's grim. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say something positive, though, on this? I mean, the, oh. the, we... What? About, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, Hold I, on, Mark. I'm going to have to insert a sound effect here. <laughs> I, I, everybody, everybody knows I'm a wee bit kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a bit a glass half full, so apologies for this. But um, I remember vividly standing in my kitchen about two years ago and, and getting... I was reading an email from somebody who just had a conversation with an official in the DFE, and the penny dropped. If we didn't get Erasmus, there would be nothing, right? It, and I stood there in my kitchen thinking... 
hang on a second, what do you mean nothing? And at that moment, we launched a great big campaign called hashtag support study abroad. It's possibly not the snappiest title we ever came up with. The fact is, in the spending review, um, whenever it was, uh, it's either six years ago or last week, um, the government said that they would fund a uh, programme to support higher education outward mobility in the middle of a massive economic crisis. So, I will not be crying into my beer. I will I will try to think about the opportunity that is ahead of us. I know that that's probably a little bit, I mean, uh, I've been accused more than once of sounding Johnsonian about this, but um, there is a new national scheme that will be launched if we're out on Erasmus, and it's our job to make that work. Today's students have access to opportunities, tools and technologies that no generation has ever had, but they also face a deeply uncertain future. The pandemic, digital disruption, widening social inequality, and a hugely challenging labour market. Universities aspire to prepare students with the knowledge, skills and behaviours that will enable them to thrive as professionals and citizens in a world that's constantly evolving. And students are looking to understand how to mobilise their knowledge to make an impact and shape the future of their profession and their community. So join us on 12th of January for a wonky at home event in partnership with Adobe, where we'll explore which skills, competencies and mindsets best enable students to succeed and how they can be made tangible in the curriculum. We'll hear insights from students and academics on the skills students need to thrive and we'll consider whether the current political framing of the value and quality of university courses really captures universities' own aspirations for their graduates. That's Skills to Thrive, 12th of January. Book now at wonky.com slash events. Right, the free speech rankings are back. Jim, what is going on? Oh, my days. So I woke up this morning in actually quite a good mood because, you know, we've got our team meeting today and I'm, you know, guest on the podcast rather than having to host it. And, you know, it's, oh, what a great day. And uh, then I realised that um, from nowhere, or at least not from anywhere that I'd got my eye on, uh, the free speech rankings are back. So um, those people that have been around for a few years now will remember that the Revolutionary Communist Party and or living Marxism and or its current kind of digital native iteration spiked for a while in the latter part of the decade was running something called the Free Speech University Rankings, which was an exercise in looking at press coverage of kind of, you know, snowflake students uh, multiplied by some analysis of university and students' union free speech and harassment policies, and that would generate a red, amber, green um, rating for a university. And this would get coverage, you know, it would come out every February and would get lots of coverage and, you know, was evidence of a big clampdown on free speech and so on. Um, and then it disappeared. So it, it, what it looks like they sort of run out, they ran out of money for someone to kind of trawl through all the policies, but it's kind of made this reappearance through the think tank Civitas, which is an offshoot of the Institute for Economic Affairs. And so, yeah, so it's made this reappearance and it's basically taken the technique that it had uh, when Spikes were running it and then we kind of multiplied it. So, it, I mean, for example, um, you, you, if you're, you, you're a university, if you're a university where some students have heckled Toby Young, you pick up points. And if, for example, you've mentioned 18 different sorts of discrimination in your harassment policy, you pick up 18 points. So there are some methodological issues in it. But I guess, you know, the, the extraordinary thing is, and the thing that I find really exhausting about it is, I think lots of people will know that I have been doing my level best to lean in to some of this free speech stuff over the past few months. I've been supporting a group of students' unions that are trying to 
to take the debate seriously and trying to understand the real tensions that are there on campus between freedom from harm and freedom to speak, the sort that, as I said earlier, Oliver Dowden was referring to in relation to online harms the other day. This is not an exercise in examining that. This is an exercise in trying to create some science out of a load of fairly partisan press coverage to make a fairly partisan point. So it's not helpful. It's just exhausting. Jonathan, why does this agenda never die? Well, partly um, because the people that it is designed to irritate on this podcast get irritated by it. Uh, partly because the people who are designed to be galvanised by it continue to get galvanised by it. And, and partly, in all seriousness, because um, although many listeners to this uh, podcast will disagree, partly because there is a serious point lurking beneath all of the um, slightly shonky methodology and slightly odd spreadsheets that, that Civitas produce. Um, but but, but uh, the, the honest answer is because it is quite easy for um, a researcher to do something like this, it doesn't cost very much money. You have to pay somebody to sit there and trawl through various things. This is the beauty of everything being online, is that actually, if you want to, you can come up with something fairly easily. And we had a, a similar thing the other week. There's another uh, similar micro group called the Campaign for Common Sense. Uh, did something on comedy uh, and the fact that all comedians booked by the BBC are all completely left-wing as well. So, uh, you know, the, the, the right are in favour of free speech occasionally, except when it's all left-wing comedians, when they instantly wanted the BBC to have diversity quotas for right-wing comedians, which as far as I can work out would mean that Jeff Norcott is the only person ever booked on Have I Got News For You. Um, and Lee Hurst, there's, there's, there's one for the older ones, if you can remember Lee Hurst from 90s comedy days. Um, but, I mean, th- th- this is, you know, we can, we can laugh about it because it's Christmas and the like, but um, when, when we do get back to, to, to proper work in January, you know, there is likely to be a, a, a potential serious push on this agenda again. But I suspect that uh, when we come back to look at the legislative annals of time, the Civitas report will not be footnoted extensively. Um, Vivian, you, you spend a lot of time speaking to universities. Uh, I mean, how high on their agenda do you think this free speech issue is? Or is it just happening in right wing think tanks and, and the right wing press? No, I think I mean, it has to be quite high on people's um, uh, list of things to think about because it's um, become a real boiling point in terms of public perceptions of universities. And I think that's um, that. I, I, I know a lot of people in senior positions in universities just feel a bit. I mean, Jim's, Jim's sort of exhausted uh, um, uh, point sort of strikes home. People just a little bit exhausted by this sort of constant barrage of um, of, of hostile. Uh, rhetoric about uh, university, the culture in universities, and 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 you know, of course, the whole sort of um, value debate. Um, but it, but it is. I mean, nonetheless, I think that despite the frustrations of going around this block, and and actually things which seem to me to be indicators of a campus where there is a good and vibrant um, culture of. Uh, uh, free speech and challenge. Um, there are some really significant issues sitting underneath it that aren't simple to solve. I mean, the, the bit that I um, find myself thinking and talking about a lot is to do with um, effectively international politics and how it plays out on campus. And some of that is a little bit pointy, um, you know, not at all easy to deal with. I mean, the, the, the current issue, which we're trying to uh, wrap our heads around and work out what to be, you know, how we could possibly be useful is how to deal with the implications of the Hong Kong security law. Um, for the activities of students who are studying in the UK. It's not, it's not nothing. There is something really difficult for universities to navigate there. I think Vivian's completely right. And, and actually, in a sense, it's a shame that reports like this uh, can, can trivialise it because you're exactly right. The issue to do with um, Hong Kong and, and, and dissident students and the like is deeply, deeply important. And I think, uh, you know, universities are placed in a very, very 
difficult position here and they, they are under, you know, legal jeopardy as well as sort of student welfare and pastoral jeopardy. Um, that that's a real issue. That is something which we should all be concerned about. My own personal view is that we should be absolutely resolute in defending uh, the right of people to speak out against uh, other countries' governments if they want to, and we shouldn't necessarily be bound by extraterritorial laws on it. And and it, it, it is a shame that it does get bound up in the same broad bucket as whether um you know whether students can 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 clap or boo Toby Toby Young, which frankly, from my perspective, you should be given an automatic first if you. Yeah. Do. I wouldn't want to go to university that didn't yeah you know, have a day every every week where we could all line up and boo Toby Young. But I mean, I mean, look, it's it, it, you know, it's funny that you know that that, that uh, kind of mention this stuff about. Um, you know, autocratic regime. So we've just done this kind of call for evidence to support this group of student unions that are trying to lean into this issue and take it seriously. And that is an issue. Student unions are struggling with that, particularly in the, in, in the space of, you know, kind of trying to support student societies. Um, but the other, I mean, the other thing we've just found out, you know, we've done, I've got 61 responses in so far from student unions about last academic year. And there were six cancellations of events. Four were people not getting their forms in on time. One was um, a, a, a pyramid scheme expert who'd spent some time, uh, you know, uh, th- 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 who'd been convicted of some uh, you know crimes as a result of this that was trying to speak at an entrepreneur society event and the student union kind of clocked it. And then the other one was, da-da-da, Jeremy Corbyn, because the party had phoned up. <laughs> and said, can we have a rally on campus tomorrow? And a clubs and societies manager said, well, you will have to fill in a form and it will take seven days. So the party said, well, forget that, we'll do it in town. So, you know, I mean, look, I've no doubt that there are real potential issues about the sort of chilling effect of what people think campus is like. But, you know, I'm worried it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's partly because what I can absolutely guarantee is this time last year, the government had just been elected three or four weeks after student unions across the country will have been running hustings events where lots and lots of conservative prospective party candidates, uh, UKIP candidates, Brexit party candidates, they will all have been turning up, taking part in debates facilitated by student union officers and staff that are desperate to make sure that students have a proper say in the political process. So so my real worry about this stuff is that the self-fulfilling prophecy of, the, of this kind of stuff makes right-wing speakers believe that there's a problem and then either you know they don't pursue coming onto campus or come onto campus assuming that campus is going to be hostile and nothing could be further from the truth most of the time and now for a musical interlude now that they've closed a student travel window and the hesus returns are complete and this horrible year that has brought us such fear Is a year we don't want to repeat All we want is the Pierce Review for Christmas A Christmas report by day Wanna read the Pierce Review this Christmas I can tell you with no sense of shame Please release the Pierce Review for Christmas 
It's so robust and never been seen. I'm waiting for the peers review this Christmas. It's been delayed since back in 2019. A new style of tech leaves us quite out of breath. So electric will shine. The year is not quite done, so please give us our fun. Hit our benchmarks on this Christmas time. We want to see the Piss Review for Christmas. 2020 has been oh so bleak. Gavin, bring us this review this Christmas. Come on, Michelle, give us a peek. Play before both houses now. That's what I'm talking about. Now, this week we've had UCAS end of cycle data and a clearer picture of what's happened uh, in the application cycle just gone. Jonathan, talk us through it. Well, it's it's good news is is the short answer. And there was obviously a lot of panic in the higher education sector uh, this summer just gone with the cancellation of exams and the uh, the, the awarding of uh, what, what, what were called these centre assessed grades, which were felt to be uh, significantly inflated on what uh, young people would have gotten their A-levels. And there was a feeling that um, essentially the government passed the buck to universities when they decided uh, not not to run A-levels and, and instead to, to, to not use the algorithm and instead to just allow their centre assess grades. The view was that, well, this is going to lead to a significant increase in young people uh, getting higher A-level grades. That's going to mean that universities have over-offered and will be stuck with additional places. And government's uh, view was more or less, well, fine, but you, you, you deal with that. Not our problem anymore now, not our political problem. Um and so there was a there was a panic as to what it would mean. But essentially, what the end of cycle data shows is that it's been managed pretty well. So applications are up, acceptances are up, uh, international student numbers, which again we were very very worried about, have more or less held up. Um, there has been a surge of A level increases. We did see a significant increase in in sort of overall A level um, pass rates go up. But but actually, and and indeed the the the, the wonky site talks about this. The predictions were actually more accurate than people had thought. There's always an issue, one of the arguments for post-qualification admissions is that predictions are felt to be inaccurate. Actually, particularly at the um, at the kind of more affluent and least affluent student end, the sort of polar quintiles one and five, 
the predictions, teacher predictions, more or less held up, not so much in the middle. Uh, and so what have we seen? Well, we've seen a, a sort of, you know, record number of uh, surge of young people going to university, actually a surge of older people going to university, particularly we think around medicine and nursing, um, all of which is good news. I suppose two pieces of, um, well, not bad news, but two pieces of unknown news to, to think about. One is that we don't know if these people will stay. Uh, and it's fairly safe to say that a lot of first years have had a difficult time of it uh, this term for various reasons which may have been picked up um, so we don't know about whether they'll stay and what the retention issues are and the second thing is of course is we're already thinking about next summer and the government is very very clear that A-levels are going to continue and uh, level 3 BTECs and the like but they were very clear last year as well um, I think the more realistic worry is how will the system deal with some young people who have been out of school for a considerable period of time. We've been doing a, a lot of work um, at Public First about this, and there are some areas of the country and some schools where attendance is 50%, 60%, 70%. Uh, we pick up a lot of parents in our focus groups saying that their kids have been out of school pretty much at least half of this term. Now, if that continues, uh, or certainly if it continues for a decent chunk of the of the, of the, um, of the Easter term up, up until Easter, you will have young people sitting their A-levels who have lost you know, most of year 12 and probably about half of year 13. Now, how you account for that in the exam system is as yet the big unanswered question. The government's solution to this is that it sets up a task force to look at it, um, which is in no way kicking the can down the road. Uh, and we, we, we wait to see what that task force is going to come up with, but it is a real issue for universities because it will ultimately be up to them to decide how they treat uh, young people that with uh, very very significant amounts of learning loss and Vivian I mean on the on the university end although the positive national picture there have been big winners and losers we haven't got the the, per, the by provider data of this yet but um, the the last minute changes uh, with the CAGs towards the end of the, the kind of exam the shambles um, meant that some universities were able to to suck in a lot of applicants yeah. um, at the expense of others yeah, I mean, I think, it, as you say, we're not quite sure how this will, um, this will sort of, um, work out when, when the sort of pattern across providers becomes a, a little clearer. But it's clear that, as you say, there have been big winners and losers, and that has, uh, significant financial implications for some institutions. And it's repeated, um, on the international side. We did do a, a little, um, enrollment survey a couple of weeks ago to try and work out where, international numbers uh, would end up. And the headlines, of course, you know, UCAS doesn't uh, deal with all international um, uh, applications, but the uh, the sort of picture they're reporting aligns with what we've heard from institutions. So, UCAS data shows a 17% increase in non-EU um, acceptances, 2% increase in EU. And um, when we look at what providers are telling us, what universities are telling us, the, um, there's a kind of 50-50 split. So, 50% have seen growth, 50% uh, have seen reductions. We're not quite sure of the magnitude of those. And probably some of the institutions who've lost numbers are dealing with quite, quite small international intakes. 25% uh, of institutions were reporting, you know, uh, um, uh, some in in their terms anyway significant increases so there's obviously been quite a kind of um divergence of fortunes this uh, uh this year and um I, I think we just have to wait and see what the consequences on financial stability will be for some institutions that might have struggled a bit and, and on international vivian the um i mean what what's the mood out there so i mean particularly thinking about international students that will be coming in january um, I know that the, the UK's reputation suffered in the, in the early response to the pandemic, um, although that didn't translate too badly in, in the, in the numbers. But what's your, what's your sense of how UKHE is, is faring up in, uh, in all this? 
I think it's the the position is really good. I mean, first of all, I think um, although the UK is regarded by um, international um, prospective international students as having managed the pandemic rather poorly compared to the other destinations that attract international students. I mean, we sort of bump along with the US in terms of management of the pandemic. Um, when it comes to the way that we've treated international students, the UK does conspicuously well. And I think the reasons for that are pretty clear. So the government has bent over backwards to make sure that international student interests are taken into consideration, including through the visa system. And um, we've got, you know, the, the, the introduction of the graduate route, um, which was announced in September and will go live this summer, um, it has been a fantastic help to us in what would otherwise be a difficult year. And then I think the final thing is you have to look at where else students would have gone. So the US has been sort of decreasingly popular for um, for reasons mostly associated with Trump's policies. But um, Australia and Canada have got closed borders. So whilst I think my understanding is that Canada has done pretty well with, um, with you know, uh, enrolling students who are studying fully online out of Canada. Um, Australia, I think, has had a more difficult time. Yes, as you say, pretty much closed closed for business. Um, Jim, John, Jonathan mentioned um, the issue of retention. You've been doing a lot of work on that this term um, and we've done some, some actual hard research. Talk us through what the, the latest numbers we've, se- we've seen. There's a really interesting question that kind of relates to, you know, I mean, our, our, look, are students going to drop out Probably not if we look at most of the numbers. And that's probably related to the reason why applications are holding up, which is partly about, you know, people are still aspirational, people still um, are attracted to higher education, but also because there's nothing else to do. We're in the middle of a what looks like a very dramatic recession and so on and so on. And we, you know, we know that people flock to education in those circumstances. But I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting about the research we've been doing is that whilst it, there's no evidence that people are about to drop out en masse, they have had a really rough time and you know Jonathan was talking about learning loss at you know for in in schools for you know um at post 16 if if, if uh, and well right across the school system but certainly at post 16 and that's obviously something we're worried about in relation to entry into university but whilst there's no you know you wouldn't necessarily say that the disruption and the learning loss has been as dramatic for higher education students there's probably no doubt and certainly looking at the research we've done there's no doubt that there's been some disruption and been some learning loss in higher education now you know, effectively, the solutions that DfE have put on the table for A-level students so far are versions of the sorts of no-detriment policies that we were seeing in higher education earlier on in the year. And, you know, the right response, therefore, is to make some structural adjustments for students that have been struggling this term through no fault of their own, but certainly not to drag down the people who've done better this term through no fault of their own. Now, where that leads you to at post-16 is baking in grade inflation. The thing about Gavin Williamson's announcement a couple of weeks ago is that he's effectively saying he's not going to try and drag the algorithm down in a, certain, in, a, in a scenario like this where you have to correct for the people doing worse than usual through no fault of their own. You have to bake in some grade inflation. What's fascinating is... We've not heard that debate yet in higher education. No one is really talking about the potential that there's been significant disruption and learning loss for HE students this term. No one's really talking about the need for OFS to signal that it will accept a level of grade inflation this year as a result of these things that have happened. And, you know, from my perspective, that becomes disproportionately important because what you really want in January is a proper interrogation of how HE students have done this term in the same way that Gavin Williamson has called a task force to interrogate how post-16 students are doing so far this year so that we can make adjustments. It's a really good point you make, Jim. And I I wonder, actually, whether one of the differences might be that 
all 16 to 18 year olds and obviously there are post 18 year olds that go to university but all 16 to 18 year olds currently sitting their level three exams they're all sitting the same exam or at least the, the same exams nationally they're either sitting an a level or a BTEC or whatever but there's differential learning loss within people sitting the same qualification whereas within an he institution you could argue broadly speaking everybody at the university of x has had more or less a common experience so given that it's within the realms of the university of x to award those degrees do, do you see what i mean you don't have a kind of a within institution issue in the same way that you do have within a levels but you still have the regulatory issue the rfs is going to come and say hold on a second what's happening here with grade inflation because you know pre, pre, you know pre, i'm old enough to remember when when gavin williamson was kind of allergic to grade inflation um and was you know instructing every part of the education system to crack down on it even where you know our data show that often cases didn't really exist yeah no ab- absolutely I, I, I mean I, I completely completely take that point and you're right you do have to get some signal from the OFS that actually if as a university of x you do award uh more firsts or more two ones this year that that that, that has to be recognized and what we can't have is another round of the uh fact, we had the great inflation data come out quite recently as well and again a big discussion about what this unexplained nature of it is so so yes i think there is something there that universities need to be careful that they don't leave themselves exposed to when that issue comes around again yeah i i think that i mean there's, there's got to be some kind of national or international agreement that, um, you know, pretty much every data set that covers literally anything in the entire world is going to look wrong in 2020 because of the pandemic. It's like it's either going to go massively up or massively down, depending on what the, the measure is. You know, and that, you know, look at league tables, you look at literally anything in HE, you look at all the data that comes out of it. Everything is wrong. Everything is skew with nothing is nothing was designed for this. And everyone's just going to have to chill out, basically. I mean, just you know I, I mean every business you know will have this massive massive drop in profits or massive spike and you know the explanation will be well the pandemic you know i don't know i just and that's that's the introduction to the uh to the multi-million pound bid into ukri from wonky it's basically <laughs> 2020 i mean we can't tell anything but you know that's what i'd like to study please i'll have half a million pounds <laughs> christmas has come early for the he walks this week as rfs has published uh, more consultations than i can even count um jim talk us through what is going on yeah so as well as this um free speech university rankings surprise gift under the tree uh we've also had a bunch of other gifts this week uh certainly in england anyway from the uh regulator the office for students um a variety of outputs that were quite kind of exhausting to read and although i managed to squeeze out you know a good 1500 words about a couple of aspects of them you get to the end of them you think there wasn't not a lot there what's really going on here and so you know for example we got a rewrite of the document that sets out how ofs will monitor and intervene in higher education and that was kind of interesting um one of the things that was built into the kind of original design of ofs and its regulatory framework was the idea that five uh, percent uh, from memory of registered providers would be randomly sampled every year um so you know they would be drawn out of the metaphorical hat in nicholson house and uh the kind of you know compliance or whatever they're called team would you know have a have a deep dive to try and work out you know what was going on in those institutions whether they were compliant with the regulatory framework to learn about those institutions and so on that's good that's gone in the name of bureaucracy reduction uh we got some stuff on reportable events these are the things that uh, higher education institutions have to tell ofs about um and the press release uh headlined on 
on uh, what's called the notifications process, which is a process by which um, third parties and the focus in the press release was students can tell OFS things, not necessarily with a view to getting resolution, but just to tell OFS things. And look, you can certainly make the argument that says it's kind of a shame that we have replaced random sampling with um, a kind of big emphasis on notifications, which is basically if people happen to tell OFS stuff, if OFS thinks it's interesting in relation to its regulatory requirements, OFS will follow it up. But, you know, we don't know who who would use it, why they would use that process. And it doesn't feel like a satisfactory replacement for, you know, kind of randomly sampling providers. Look, as I say, you get to the end of these documents, what's all all this about? And I think think it's about a couple of things. One of the things it's about is there's no doubt that various bits of the documents that have come out this week pick up uh, uh, technical issues with the critique of the regulator that came out of the court case involved Bloomsbury Institute and OFS's kind of general approach and some of its practices in developing its regulation and the initial uh, registration of providers. Won't dwell on that too much. But what is kind of related to that is this wider issue uh, that was actually the focus of a blog from uh, the chief exec, Nicola Dandridge, about roughly the day before the pandemic hit. So almost the very last blog we ran on Wonky before big lockdown was a blog from Nicola, which was talking about broadly resetting the relationship between universities and the regulator in tonal terms to try and build a different kind of relationship. People have got very upset with the tone of lots of the documents. and Now, you can either argue that OFS needed in its first year, 18 months, to very clearly signal that it wasn't you know, subject to producer capture, that it was different to Hefkey, that it was on the side of students rather than, you know, balancing its sides and so on, and that therefore it needed to be very robust in the first uh, period. Or you can argue that some of the uh, stuff that it put out was unnecessarily difficult, crunchy, antagonistic and so on. I'm not really sure where I sit on that, uh, although what I do hear is lots and lots of people in the sector that have gone very annoyed at things. But I mean, you know, the one thing I'd say about all of this is there's something else I've read this week, which is actually from Ofsted of all organisations, which is obviously a very different kind of regulator with very different kinds of powers and actually much more intrusive. But there's an Ofsted document floating around this week about the further education sector that is a run through of all of its engagement with further education providers during the pandemic. It's interesting. It's helpful. It t- it reflects on the situation students find themselves in. Uh, it talks about the sort of support that leaders need. It's one of the most useful documents I've read on the tertiary education sector. And it couldn't be more different to this kind of fairly turgid technical stuff that is tumbling out of OFS for whatever reason. Jonathan, that's that's really interesting. I know you work across the, uh, the whole education landscape. Um, has there been a change in tone from Ofsted as well, or is what Jim describes uh, quite unusual? I mean, I, I think actually Ofsted always do a very good job at understanding this. Their, their sort of data and intelligence uh, gathering function and, and what used to be called their thematic reports, I think, are really interesting. And of course, what's happened at the moment is that um, quite quietly, Ofsted has more or less uh, amalgamated Ofqual uh, since since the uh, exam fiasco in the summer. So you now have a, a super regulator in the 
post uh, sorry in the sub 18 sector looking at all elements of schoolwork and of course the, the other thing that's happened is that Ofsted has has barely been able to be into schools this term so it has a lot of additional capacity so all of those things I suspect mean that it's got both more data and, and, and also more time and scope to be looking into these kind of things so it, it, it was it was a good report and it was good to see but I, I strongly suspect sadly that it's uh, it's more it's more an aberration than it is a, a consistency I don't think I don't think I've ever heard anyone on the wonky show wish that the OFS was more Ofsted-like. <laughs> just, wait, just wait until we have an Ofsted for right. universities. Thank, thank you, Mark. There's a, pre, <laughs> there's a pre, pre-Christmas blog to do this evening. <laughs> uh, I mean, Vivian, do, have you noticed the, the change in tone that was flagged earlier this year? Well, I mean, not really. I mean, I, I, I've been arguing for a while that um, the OFS is just a teenage regulator and it's, it's going through its kind of slamming doors and shouting at you phase and that eventually it will probably sort itself out. I also think like um, many teenagers, it helps to be right doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to stand in your in, in the sort of doorway of your bedroom, hollering at your, uh, you know, whoever it is you're trying to influence, it would be it would be helpful if you weren't kind of basically uh, fundamentally wrong in some respects. And I think that that's the thing that um, that that surprises and disappoints me about some of the things that I read um, from. Uh, and I have to say, I haven't read the latest batch of um, consultations. I really tried, but I thought that they were likely to be so boring that I I I played my nope card. I I said nope, I'm not going to read that. Um, but I I have been looking at the uh, consultation they published on um on quality and standards and it just it just makes you sort of slightly sad i think because it's a really important area and uh there is i think uh you know there is some just there is some fundamental um absences in that which which i think reveal uh i i i think a an, an absence of quality in some of the things that the OFS puts out. And look, the other thing that I would say is that w- w- what the documents this week have been um, kind of a part of is this process over the past couple of months of sort of relaunching the regulator insofar as there's been this emphasis on, you know, the regulator as a risk-based regulator um, and one that is concerned principally with the quality of outcomes from higher education rather than the actual higher education being provided itself and and you know the the people's expectations i think of ofs are often you know counter to the, the those things in terms of you know what it looks at what it's concerned about and so on the question is whether or not um, that can survive or whether it will continue to jar really i mean there was a moment a couple of weeks ago ofs did this um online event and they'd got someone on that was reflecting on the relationship between um companies in the kind of you know telecoms industry and ofcom and i was thinking that was fascinating you know ofcom doesn't wander around regulating telecoms in the in- industry and, and broadcasters on whether people feel cleverer as a result of what's happened or whether people are happier um, or whether people are economically more successful as a result of those industries. You know, they regulate on the actual things. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is going to continue, I think, to be really jarring for OFS, as I say, to focus on relent- fairly relentlessly the outcomes from higher education rather than higher education itself. And I think the jury's out, particularly in this period where, in the end, I think, can you ask interesting questions about what it is the government is prepared to subsidise and what it isn't prepared to subsidise? So the question about you know, funding of higher education but should that be directly related to these questions about the regulation of higher education? In other words, you know, in the end, it's going to be a political judgment, isn't it, about what you fund 
what you don't fund, the subjects and the people that you prioritise and the ones that you don't prioritise with your subsidy. And it feels like asking a regulator to do that rather than politicians doing it is generating a lot of confusion, some difficulty in terms of gap and overlap, and certainly a lot of confusion at, at, at best about expectations. And if anyone can't face reading all these documents, we've got handy summaries and analysis on uh, wonky.com. The year 2020 was awful at best No help from the top, you were put to the test Despite constant uncertainty, shifting goalposts Well, you've made it to Christmas, so let's raise a toast With long days on teams and no campus to go It tested much more than your lateral flow It's a real Christmas miracle that you pulled through So we'd like to say thank you for all that you do Wishing you Merry Christmas from Walkie to you so that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Vivian, Jonathan, Jim and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next year, stay safe, stay wonky. See you then. for a musical interlude <laughs> or a, a version of that um, and now for a musical interlude there's no correlate this week but DK's here with a song <laughs> or there's no correlate this week but DK has thoughts of what he'd like for Christmas <laughs> have you got enough there Jim? yeah I mean <laughs> any of those I might use all of them <laughs> There's a lot of bloopers. You'll hear it at the start. There's a lot of bloopers at the very start. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.